the title to our sermon today, which is Church, Wash Your Face, is inspired by some things that I read on Twitter. First, and this is so weird, okay? First, there was a debate last week on Twitter over whether or not people should wash their legs when they take a shower. Yes, we have reached that place in our society when these are the things that consume public discourse. People actually debated the validity of washing your legs in the shower. God help us. So there were some people who argued that you don't have to wash your legs when you take a shower because all the soap from your upper body flows down your legs and does that washing for you. And then, whoever said that, and then, in case you thought I was siding on that side, and then, now I lost my place in my notes. And then there were people who rightly said that you need to wash your legs in the shower. So I'm not sure which is more shocking, that there was a public debate over the validity of washing your legs in the shower or the fact that some people do not wash their legs in the shower. I'm going to get some emails about this, aren't I? Well, let me tell you today, church, wash your legs. Second... The sermon title is a play on words of a book that was popular and controversial a few years ago titled, Girl, Wash Your Face, subtitle, Stop Believing the Lies About Who You Are So You Can Become Who You Were Meant to Be. I have not read this book at all, and I am not endorsing this book at all. All I know is that it created quite a stir on Twitter, and what I read about it in my circles was not very flattering. In fact, Here's how one review on the Gospel Coalition website went. And it sounds a lot like what the super apostles were saying to the Corinthians. Here's what one reviewer said. Reading, girl, wash your face, exhausted me. It's all about what I can be doing better and what I'm not doing well enough. How to be better at work, parenting, and writing. How to be less bad at cardio, intimacy, and, you know, changing the world. But grasping the good news of who I am in Christ and nothing else is what brings true rest. So rest from striving, my friend. Yes, wash your face, take care of yourself, make good choices, but know who you are in Christ Jesus. If you let this truth become the foundation of how you see the world, You'll be content to glorify him in every situation, whether cleaning bathrooms or relaxing at your beach home, changing diapers or crushing your career goals. So let me tell you today, church, wash your legs and wash your face. But most of all, know who you are in Christ Jesus. The title to that book really gets at the heart of our passage today. Paul's going to tell the Corinthian church, church, wash your face, or really, wash your mind. Stop believing the lies about God so that you can rest in who you are. Paul wants 
the Corinthian church that he planted. He wants them to grasp the good news of who they are in Christ Jesus, knowing that only that will bring them true rest. So in order to help them rest, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians once again that Jesus loves them. Let me ask you something today. When's the last time you were awestruck that God loves you? I mean, really awestruck that God loves you. And he knows everything about you. That he loves you. If it's been a while, let me encourage you today to be in awe. Be in awe that God loves you. Be awestruck. Marvel anew that God loves you. And when that happens, that's when you really start to rest. And that's when you really start to enjoy God, which is what you were created for. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians Recall what we looked at several weeks ago. We are in the middle of this theology sandwich, this chiasm that Paul has made. Uh, I think we're going to pull it up on the slide here. Maybe. There we go. Notice that we're in the middle of this chiasm. Last week, we're at the point C we saw was the middle of this theology sandwich, the gospel. And you have these parallel truths on either side. And so today, we're in chapter 7, verse 1, where we're talking about how They are to cleanse themselves, and it parallels not being unequally yoked. And we saw several weeks ago that to not be unequally yoked does not relate or pertain to marriages. It relates to the Corinthians needing to break up with this group of false teachers that has invaded their church. They need to not be unequally yoked with them. So today we're in this next section of this sandwich talking about cleansing ourselves from defilement. Keep in mind, Paul has been talking about how the Corinthian church has been stained and infected with the false teaching of the super apostles. So that's what Paul will be talking about in verse 1 today. How we can be defiled by false gospels and how we need to wash our spiritual legs of defilement, how we need to wash our minds of false ideas about God and his gospel. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're just looking at verse 1 today. Hear the word of the Lord. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. First, notice what Paul calls the Corinthians. Beloved. What a beautiful word. It's so easy to just fly past this little word, but it's actually very pregnant with gospel truth. It's the same word that is used of Jesus in Ephesians 1 when Paul tells the Ephesian church that God had predestined them to adoption. And why? He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. This word beloved is used of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 6. One of my Greek professors uh, in seminary, Dr. Harold Honer, in his commentary in Ephesians, says that this Greek word beloved refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. 
It also refers to one who is the only one of his or her class or type, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. The only one who is loved and cherished. To be called beloved means that God loves you as if you were his only child. It means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, he now has for you just as if you were his only kid. Let that sink in. God loves each one of us as if we were his only child. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the only kid that God had? Think about that. That's how God loves you, Christian. Today, right now. Because you have been united with Christ by the Spirit, God loves us as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. Can you imagine how much love and affection and devotion God would dole out on you if you were his only child? Like if it was just you and God, how much love and affection would just come your way? Well, that's what the word beloved means. So be in awe. Alec Motier said, the Lord is looking at you and me. He is the great lover in this Valentine. And we, we are the beloved. And he looks on us and says, joy and gladness all the way over you. Love that's more than words can say all for you. So Grace, be in awe that he loves you and that he gave his son for you and that he united you to his son by the Holy Spirit and that he forgives you and that he adopts you. So I'm talking about a palpable awe here, a, a tangible awe where you feel it in your bones. When's the last time you were downright floored by the gospel? When's the last time that you were absolutely flabbergasted by the good news? I mean, flat out just awestruck, like (gasps) jaw dropped, mouth agape, wide-eyed wonder. When's the last time you were just completely overwhelmed and grateful for all that God has done for you in salvation? If you're a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit made you a Christian. You didn't make yourself a Christian. You were dead in sin. He made you alive. He regenerated you so that you could repent and believe. He made you alive in Christ. He wrote the gospel on your heart. He signed the adoption papers. And because we are God's beloved children adopted into his family because we have these promises that Paul was talking about at the end of chapter 6 that we saw last week, because of all that, it should affect our thinking. The promises that Paul has in mind here in verse 1 are what we looked at last week, promises like God has made his dwelling with us and that Jesus just cannot get close enough to his people. 
Promises like we belong to him now and we are his people. He looks at us and says, those are my people. Promises like he has adopted us into his family and that he is our father and that he is the Lord Almighty. We saw that Greek word, pantokrator. So because we have all these wonderful gospel promises, because they are sure, because we can trust them, then we should, as Paul says here in verse 1, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Now, the million-dollar question here is, what does it mean to cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit? What in the world does that even mean? What is Paul talking about here in verse 1? The key to understanding cleansing ourselves, like every passage in the Bible, is the context, right? It's the gospel that Paul has just spelled out for the Corinthians at the end of chapter 6. It's coming to grips with the fact that we are God's beloved children. And when you begin to come to grips with that truth that you are loved as if you were God's only child, it will make you want to cleanse yourself from all falsehood, all wrong thoughts of God, all wrong theologies, all false doctrine, all false gospels. So Paul calls the Corinthians to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body or flesh, some translations, and spirit. Paul uses flesh and spirit here to refer to the whole person, all that we are. Flesh is not the sinful nature here, as Paul often uses it in his writings. Here, he's just talking about the two parts of every single human being born into this world. The spirit and the body, the immaterial and the material. He's talking about all that we are as human beings. Our whole being, all of us. And one key to help us understand what Paul is saying is the word defiled here. Paul uses a form of this word defiled in 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to refer to a defiled conscience. And then the preacher of Hebrews also refers to having a cleansed conscience. And the apostle Peter talks about how we can forget that we've been cleansed from our sins. So I think Paul is talking about cleansing ourselves from defiled thoughts. Defiled thinking, meaning anti-gospel thoughts, which is what the Corinthians were struggling with. Keep the theology in mind here. Keep the context in mind. Paul wants the Corinthians to wash their minds of any unbiblical ideas of God, which is why he just talked about how God is our Father. He is the Lord Almighty. The sense here is, let us cleanse ourselves by keeping clear of Keep clear of any, <clears throat> any unbiblical ideas <clears throat> about God. And this idea of cleansing ourselves from defiled thoughts and from anti-gospel thinking, from false theology, it's not some isolated thought in Scripture. Paul uses this exact word about cleansing when he writes to Timothy. And he tells him this in 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, 
ready for every good work. Kind of the same idea of what he's talking about here. What is Paul referring to in 2 Timothy 2? When Paul tells Timothy to cleanse himself from the dishonorable, he's talking about the false teachings of Hymenaeus and Philetus, which he just mentioned right before verse 21. These men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, denied the resurrection. So Paul calls on Timothy to cleanse himself from that false teaching, from people who deny the resurrection. As the New English Translation Bible says in a footnote, Paul is alluding to the errors and deeds of the false teachers described in verses 14 through 19. Paul is calling on Timothy to wash his mind, if you will, to cleanse himself from false teaching, to not have anything to do with the false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, because they deny the resurrection. So Paul has in mind there, and I think here in our passage, cleansing ourselves from false teaching. Here in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, in essence, Paul is saying, cleanse yourselves from the false teaching of the super apostles, wash your mind of their teachings, keep clear of them, rid yourself of their defiled works-based theology. Remember, the super apostles were telling the Corinthians, you can earn God's love if you just obey the law. Try a little bit harder, do a little bit more, and God will love you. And Paul's saying, you need to wash your mind of that stuff. Now, we tend to read 2 Corinthians 7, 1 with a moral lens, don't we? As if Paul is talking here about sanctification and putting sin to death and walking in holiness. And that's certainly one way to interpret this verse, especially because Paul does mention holiness here. Yes, we are called to live lives that please our Lord. No one's denying that. But I don't think this verse is necessarily stressing a moral element here. And the context is the key. I would argue that the cleansing that Paul has in mind here is breaking ties with these false teachers who undermine the free grace of God in Christ. They need to clean the church out. They need to scrub it. They need COVID-19 protocol in their church. Just wipe everything down is what he's saying. Cleanse the church body of this works righteousness theology. Some in the Corinthian church were falling prey to this teaching. And so how do they cleanse the church? Look at verse 1 again. Since we have these promises, mentioned at the end of chapter 6, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So another million dollar question is, what does it mean to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God? What does Paul have in mind here? That's a mouthful, isn't it? Bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. What does that mean? If he doesn't have in mind a moral element here, then why does Paul use the word holiness? Doesn't holiness imply that we should live holy lives and mortify sin and be sanctified? Yes. But that's not the only way to define holiness. The word holy in Scripture means to be set apart, to be different. It doesn't necessarily imply morality. For instance, what does it mean that God is holy? We tend to think of God's holiness 
only in terms of moral categories. But the Hebrew and Greek words for holy mean to be set apart. Now, yes, God is holy. He is pure. He is without sin. I'm not saying that at all. When we say that God is holy, we're saying he is different. He is other. There's no one like him. There's nothing in creation that we can point to and say, that's what God is like. God is not just a bigger and better version of us. He's altogether different in a whole other category. That's what holy means. So to be holy doesn't only have a moral element to it. In fact, we see this in Zechariah 14. Pots and dishes are holy. Tell me, how can a pot have a moral element to it? It's such a good pot. Genesis 2-3, God declared the seventh day was what? Holy. He wasn't saying it's pure, it's never sinned. Numbers 18, offerings were holy. Doesn't mean the offerings were pure like, man, this this shekel that I'm going to give in the offering is untainted with sin. It's not saying that. It's saying it's set apart. It's different. So there's not necessarily a moral category. And so when Paul encourages the Corinthians to bring holiness to completion, he's not thinking in moral categories here, I don't think. Paul's talking about being set apart, being different. So in context, Paul is saying, leave all those anti-gospel thoughts and teachings and cleanse yourself, cleanse the church, set yourself apart from the super apostles. You've been set apart to God. You're his people You are his adopted children, his beloved children. He is your father. So break off the ties with the super apostles. Come out from them and be separate, set apart, which he said in chapter 6. So in order to bring holiness to completion, they must break ties with these false teachers. They must bring their set-apartness to completion, meaning break up with the super apostles. Paul says, since we have been adopted into the family of Almighty God and he dwells within us, it should be a no-brainer that we cleanse ourselves from any ideas where we have to earn our way to God by hopping on the treadmill, the performance treadmill, which is exactly what the super apostles were saying. Now, the, the word that Paul uses here for completion is sometimes translated as perfection, Paul certainly does not mean that they are to become perfect somehow through their own works. They're already perfect in God's eyes through Jesus' works. And Paul says, bring holiness to completion. He's encouraging the Corinthians to bring to completion their set-apartness, which he said a few verses back in chapter chapter 6, Verse 17, when he said, go out from their midst and be separate from them. To bring holiness, set-apartness to completion is to break ties with these false teachers, to scrub their church of the super apostles. And then what motivates them to do that? Number one, the promises of God. And number two, the fear of God. Bring holiness to completion. Bring your set-apartness to completion in the fear of God. Now, interesting. Another million-dollar question is, what is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean 
to fear God? That's a question every Christian should know the answer to. And the answer just might surprise you. The answer just might cause you to bring holiness to completion. And it just might cause you to be in awe, to marvel anew that God loves you. What does Paul mean when he mentions the fear of God in verse 1? The fear of the Lord or fearing God means two different things in the Bible. One for the believer, one for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, those who have not repented of their sins, they're not trusting in Christ alone. For them, appearing before God the judge and having to give account for their life, every thought, every word, every deed, every motive, that should strike fear in them. Because without God's forgiveness... Without Christ's righteousness, we could never approach God, and we would never want to. Without the cross, God would only be a dreadful judge of whom we would be afraid. Without the cross, we'd be scared to death of God, and unbelievers will be scared to death of God on that final day when they stand before him and they have to give account for their lives. They will be scared. But for the believer... To fear God isn't to be afraid of him. Let me repeat that. For the believer, to fear God is not to be afraid of him. To fear God is to live with this sense of awe and wonder at his unfailing love for us in his son Jesus being afraid of God and being scared to death of God like an unbeliever should and will be on that final day, being afraid of God and being scared of God is not the same thing as fearing the Lord for God's children. To fear the Lord for the Christian is the awe and the wonder that overcomes us and overwhelms us as we embrace the staggering truth that in Christ, God loves and forgives sinners and unites them to Christ by his spirit and declares them righteous and then adopts them into his forever family. The fear of God, get this, is actually a beautiful doctrine. We think it would be doom and gloom, wouldn't it? Who's going to come to a Sunday school class on the fear of the Lord? But it's a beautiful doctrine. And when you rub it deep down into your pores, it will cause you, get this, to enjoy God. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the fear of the Lord means you can enjoy God. The fear of the Lord is good news. I mean, imagine that. It's good news. In fact, it's something you need every single day because it's this awe and wonder that an infinitely holy God sent his one and only son to save you. It's a joyful trembling. It's trusting awe. That's the fear of the Lord. That's how I would describe it. It's this joyful trembling like, oh my gosh. It's trusting awe like, I believe it. (gasps) And so to fear God isn't to be afraid of him. It's to live in awe of his unfailing love for us in Jesus. 
Being afraid of God and having a biblical gospel-centered fear of the Lord are as opposite as law and gospel are opposite. The idea of fear here is one of gratitude. Our sheer gratitude for his forgiveness drives us to love and serve him. And so forgiveness then becomes the fertile soil for growing a right and correct fear of God. Without God's forgiveness, we could never approach him and we would never want to. Without the cross, God would only be a dreadful judge and we would be afraid. Without the cross, we would be scared to death of God. And so the gospel turns our natural dread of God as sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. Our adoption as sons and daughters actually sweetens the relationship. It sweetens this relationship so that we can enjoy God. As Paul says in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You don't shrink back in fear when you see God, Christian. You see him in like a little child. You say, Daddy. As God's adopted children, we're given his spirit, not a spirit of slavery, which leads to fear and terror. And that's why Paul has brought up the promise of adoption at the end of chapter 6. Because there's this family fear that he has in mind. The fear of an overwhelmed child marveling at the goodness of their father. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is really helpful here because it kind of breaks down the difference between filial fear, the fear of a son, a child, and servile fear. Servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner has when they see their torturer coming. Servile fear is the fear of a criminal when he sees the executioner coming. coming. But filial fear is a family fear, the fear that a son or daughter has for their father. It's a fear that a child has for their parents. They don't want to offend them. They don't want to disappoint their parents. Instead, they want to please their parents. Filial fear means that we hold God in holy and childlike awe. So here's a piece of chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, And from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. As also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. That's the fear of the Lord. Not a slavish fear, but childlike love, childlike wonder. Like when you're making coffee in the morning and your little one wakes up and they're tired and they come in, what are they? They just want to hug mom and dad. They're not scared of mom and dad in that moment. And mom and dad haven't even had their coffee yet, so maybe they should be. But they're not. They just come in and they're just like, Dad, that's the fear of the Lord. You just come in and you say, 
one of those fears, slavish fear, will make your life miserable. And one of those fears, childlike awe and wonder, will free you to enjoy God and to laugh and to dance. Let me recommend childlike awe and wonder to you over slavish fear. So I'm talking about a very palpable awe, palpable reverence and honor and wonder and worship. The unbeliever, on the other hand, should fear God. Absolutely. The unbeliever is under God's wrath. They are in Adam. They are outside of Christ. They should fear God and repent and flee to Jesus. But for the Christian The fear of the Lord is not a gloomy doctrine. It's what your heart needs every single day. The fear of the Lord, one that will cause you to bring holiness to completion, is a joyful trembling. There's tears of joy and wonder and awe. And it sparks and it stirs up obedience and a willing mind and a desire to glorify Jesus and live for his glory. Now let me say one more thing about the fear of God. Of course, we don't come flippantly into God's presence or just treat him lightly and be like, eh, he's holy. We don't do that at all, okay? I'm not saying that you can live life in total disregard of God just because you are forgiven. I am not saying grace abounds, so now we can live any way we want to. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't think that I'm saying that. If you think for a minute that you can approach God flippantly and just live any way you want to, totally disregarding his word and his sovereignty over your life, then you haven't read your Bible enough. Hebrews 4.16 doesn't say, let us then flippantly draw near. Let us with confidence in the work of Christ draw near. But we do not have to be afraid of God. Michael Reeves says this in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, Highly recommend it to you. I recommended it to you, I think, at the end of last year. It's finally out. He says this, It is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite, to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. If we are in Christ... We do not have to be afraid of God. Instead, we are in awe that he has been good to sinners. Like us. We are awestruck that the gospel is true. It's just too good to be true, isn't it? But it is true. It's saying things like, I can't believe it, but I believe it. I can't believe that God loves me like I'm his only child, but I believe it. And where does the fear of the Lord come from? It comes from sensing the love and kindness of Jesus. Not Jesus with a frown on his face. Not Jesus saying, shame on you. That will make you run from him. It's sensing the love and kindness of Jesus where he says, look, I know you are an absolute mess and your friends don't know how bad you are. They wouldn't hang out with you. I know the worst about you and I welcome you. Come here. So the fear of the Lord is not doom and gloom. It's sensing the love and kindness of God. And so Paul has in mind here an instrumental sense. In verse 1, bring your set apartness to completion by living in awe of God. In other words, Paul is telling the Corinthians, church, 
Wash your face. Wash your mind. Wash your legs too. You need to do that when you're in the shower. Wash and cleanse yourself from any defilement, any false gospel, any anti-God thoughts, any lies about how good and gracious and loving and kind and forgiving God is. Tremble in awe and wonder that he loves you. In short, Paul is telling the Corinthians, be in awe. Be in awe that God loves you. Be awestruck. Marvel anew that he loves you just as if you were his only child. And when that happens, that's when you really start to rest. That's when you really start to enjoy God. Listen, the worst thing that could happen to us is losing our awe of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. It's the worst thing that can happen to us. We're like, yeah, the gospel again. Every single week we sing the gospel, pray the gospel, preach the gospel. It's the gospel, gospel, gospel. The worst thing that happened to us is to have our heart get to that place where we're not awestruck by that anymore. I mean, God, we are united to his son. Think about how amazing that is. Think how amazing that the Spirit made us alive when we were dead or sin, dead in sins and connected us to Jesus so that right now, believe it or not, this is crazy. This is crazy. Right now, if you could come into God's presence, and let's just say you were kind of standing outside the door, and God the Father said, hey, Jesus, and you walked in, he'd say, oh, there you are. That's how united to Christ you are. That when God looks at you, he sees his son. So that if he said, hey, Jesus, come here, and you showed up, he wouldn't say, what are you doing here? He'd be like, hey, you're here. That's how united to God, to Christ you are. And so the worst thing that could happen to us is losing this sense of awe and wonder. We don't want that to happen. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Okay, how about a quote from John Bunyan to close this out? He says, Oh, that a great God should be a good God. A good God to an unworthy, to an undeserving, and to a people that continually do what they can to provoke the eyes of his glory. This should make us tremble. There is nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart as the grace of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you to rekindle and stoke the fire of our wonder. We're too easily distracted and attracted to far lesser luminaries than you. It's a perilous thing to take your great love for granted. It's an arrogant thing to presume on your welcome. It's a deadly thing to be underwhelmed with the riches of the gospel. So melt us, meet us, and mesmerize us again. Send your spirit, Jesus, Rescue us from our dullness and smugness. Blessed Holy Spirit, we know it is your utter delight to answer such a cry. So open the eyes of our heart right now. Give us faith.
faith-filled eyes that we might run to Jesus with awe-filled hearts. Make Jesus the most marvelous one in our gaze today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.